This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. So today we're speaking to former FBI negotiator Gary Nessner, who has written a book that's called Stalling for Time that details his career. He was with the FBI for 30 years. 23 of those years he spent as a hostage negotiator. He was chief of the FBI's crisis negotiations unit critical response team. Oof. So a very, very accomplished individual. He was definitely at the height of his field. And I have to say, just after speaking to him, such a lovely guy. Really? You know when you do an interview and you just think, yeah, I'd love to hang out with him. He's just a nice guy. I don't imagine former FBI negotiators to... to that, that wouldn't be the first thing I would expect. Because you think quite tough, right? Quite polished, quite hard. Right. You know? I didn't... I mean, I can't, I've only spent a little bit of time with him on the phone, so I can't say, but I didn't pick up on that. I right. actually found him quite warm and understanding and empathetic when he was speaking about the work that he does and how he deals with people. Um, but he has been involved with a full gamut of delicate situations during his career. I mean, I'm talking airplane hijackings, terrorist embassy takeovers, all sorts of high stakes scenarios. And I wanted to get a sense of the way that he operates. I asked him about some of the tactics that he employs in these high pressure situations and especially what he's learned over the years. When I first got in into negotiations, it was a fairly new discipline in law enforcement, and the focus initially was on bargaining. It was devised the negotiation program essentially with hostage taking in mind, which is, you know, when someone holds a hostage and threatens to harm them unless their demand is fulfilled. So that's a pretty instrumental behavior. They want something they can't get on their own, and by threatening a hostage, they hope to compel us to do it for them, release prisoners, give them money, a getaway car, whatever it might be. And what we learned is that instead of responding to that in a feverish or confrontational way, we, we slow it down. And, and through uh, the stalling for time, you know, which is the title of, of my book, we slowly and uh, systematically convey to the perpetrator that they don't have as much control as they thought. And that they need us to do whatever they want. So that gives us a fair amount of influence over how they behave. And ultimately, their expectations decline to the point where they're left with a simple choice of either cooperating with with law enforcement or run the risk of being seriously injured or killed. Something that he also said was when you're dealing with these people, often you have to understand this is the worst day of their lives. Yeah, They are in some sort of heightened, emotional, stressful state of being, and it's already a bad situation for them. And he said, usually people just want to be heard. So that's why a lot of what he advocates for and a lot of what the FBI does now when it comes to hostage negotiations is just listening, active listening, as he says, and repeating back to people the stories that they've just told you to indicate that you understand them, that you kind of feel them, that you feel what they're going through. Today, we're focusing in, we're drilling down on a very specific incident that you might remember from the early 90s, or if you weren't you know, particularly remembering the, seeing this in the news if you were too young. Maybe you've seen the recent mini series called Waco. Are you familiar at all I with this am incident? Not, no, no. It was a 51 day siege Oof. in Waco, Texas. And 
It's in fact, Waco, Texas, is a rather small place. It's best known for the dramatic events that unfolded back in 1993. It started in February when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms raided a small compound, which was called the Mount Carmel Center Ranch, and it was occupied at the time by a group of people who were known as the Branch Davidians. We will get to exactly who the Branch Davidians are, and depending on your perspective of this group, people either see them as a deluded cult. That was led by a power-hungry, a very beguiling leader, David Koresh. I've heard of him. Or you might see it as just a religious group who wanted and had every right to their own autonomy. I think the only people that really see it that way are the people who were inside that building or who were part of that group. Because mm. most people and throughout history, it's been described as one of those typical tragic cult situations. Uh, let's have Gary, though, take the story from here. He told me how he came to be involved with one of the biggest cases of his career. I'm out with my family on a weekend on a shopping excursion and my beeper goes off and I call my boss and find out that there had been um, a shootout between another federal agency, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and a religious cult called the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. And there had been loss of life. Um, there had been a tremendous firefight, a lot of violence. And uh, I was to go to an airport and jump on an FBI plane and along with some others, fly out there uh, immediately. At this point, you're probably asking, who on earth are the Branch Davidians? What does that mean? And what are they mm. doing getting involved in a firefight with the government? I mean, certainly they know there's no way they can win this situation, right? Well, they started as... And which div- branch are they is what I'm wondering. <laughs> is there a different branch? Is there a head office? There is, in fact, a different <laughs> oh, branch. They, no. they kind of branched off because they? they started as the Davidians. It's a Christian religious movement that really kind of flourished in the late 19th century in the right. U.S. There are still, to this day, apparently 19 million members worldwide Decent, that. of this group of people. Now, key to this, their belief set is that the Davidian kingdom would be brought about by the apocalypse, which okay. would happen imminently. They're on track for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, carry on. Can you just imagine? They're taking 2020 as yeah, evidence. They just, they just of... added an extra million members this year. <laughs> Well, the leader of the group at the time in the U.S. brought the Waco land back in 1930. So at this point, he passes away. There's a faction in the group. And that's when it becomes the Branch Davidians. Right. Creative name, right? Yeah. You're branching off, but you're still the Davidians. The olive branch Davidians (laughs) that is holding it out, maybe. Uh, The group is something that David Koresh only joined back in the early 80s. So he wasn't with it from the start. He joined in the early 80s. It sounds like he had quite a troubled background. He found the group. He quickly climbed the ladder and started to stand out as a natural leader. So it was only in the 90s that the government started to intervene with this group. And they had been operating behind the scenes doing their thing for decades. And it was all because of reports of some unusual activity. Loud firearms discharges at night. The Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Agency had begun an investigation of the Branch Davidians based on reports that they were manufacturing or converting weapons illegally from semi-automatic to automatic, which is against federal law. And they began to investigate and ultimately uh, came up with um, information they put into a search warrant and an arrest warrant for David Koresh. And it was uh, in the uh, attempt to uh, execute that warrant that um, the Davidians found out the ATF was coming and were there ready for him. And when the ATF arrived, there was a big shootout that unfolded. The television show that I was involved in it now on Netflix, uh, the six-part miniseries, 
it more or less projects that ATF fired first, but I, I don't think that's been definitively proven. And I think there's a lot of uh, disagreement as to who fired the first shot. But regardless, shots were fired and then all hell broke loose. And at the time, it was the largest um, shootout uh, in the United States soil since the Civil War. Pretty tragic event. Four ATF agents killed, 17 wounded. Uh, another five or six civilians were killed. Uh, it was a mess. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Wow. Um, Gary, at this point, comes on the scene because he's there to negotiate with the Branch Davidians. But I'm there thinking, what do they want exactly? What are you negotiating? Because they need to have terms. They need to be asking for something. And he said they just wanted to be left alone. Essentially, they didn't want to be subject of the U.S. law, which, of course, is impossible. That was not something that the FBI could grant them in that negotiation. So it's actually quite a complicated negotiation. Mm. How do you negotiate with that when it's not something you can give them? They didn't need a truckload of cash or the keys to a plane. No. They're just like, turn around. Do planes have keys? I I wouldn't even know. (laughs) Do you turn the ignition on a plane? How do you turn on a plane? Probably with a button, I would assume. That's a good question, though. Maybe an air, maybe, maybe, a pilot maybe a pilot out there can let us can know. Let us know that key question. But yeah, uh, I suppose, yeah, well, they'd already massively broken the law. Yeah. So they were just vigilantes, I assume, at this yeah, point. Yeah, at this point, they're just kind of, it's a holdout. The siege lasted for 51 days. It went on. And it's quite a scene as well in terms of the environment. You know, you saw tanks. There were fo- there are photos still to this day that you can see of it. Tanks surrounding this compound. Um, there were reports also, and we'll get to this, of the FBI playing very loud, blurring music to, to encourage sleep deprivation. Um, so there were different tactics being used. They just brought some ghetto blasters. <laughs> that sounds a bit random. A shootout followed by loud music. What music would it be for you? Oh, just anything electronic, trance or hard, hardcore, like electronic music. Or actually, if you really wanted to flush me out, just amp up the R&B. Play really? Car- yeah, Cardi B would get me scampering out of there. <laughs> Before too long. Okay, good to know. I'll keep that in mind. Um, Now, of course, this group of people, the Branch Davidians, they believe David Koresh is a prophet. Their ideology also has to do with the end of time. So in a way, the ATF comes in, that initial group from the government, and it was almost like they were fulfilling the prophecy. They're coming to get us. You know, this heightened sense almost worked with David Koresh to embolden him to say, yeah, this is as this is what we've seen coming and it's playing out. No surprise, really. But yeah, well, who was, though, this very larger than life figure, David Koresh? Yeah, I mean, he was viewed as a a classic charismatic leader that um, demanded total devotion from his followers and and pretty much got it. uh, there was only one person that made decisions inside, and that was David. Now, uh, I was in touch with him when I first got there that, that first evening, and he seemed like a fairly lucid guy to me. Uh, he certainly wasn't mentally disturbed uh, or, you know, what someone would say, crazy, but um, certainly narcissistic and self-serving, and um, he had been wounded in the shootout and was um, under some significant uh, pain when I spoke to him, but... I was also encouraged he had let some children go even before I arrived, and uh, I was hopeful that once we got through the emotion of what had happened on that initial uh, shootout between the two parties, that we could come in as the FBI as a neutral party and find some ability to resolve the situation. 
Now, he told me early in our conversation that a lot of the hostage situations that he deals with or negotiation situations that he deals with has to do with people who are having emotional outbursts. You know, they want to be heard. This is a very different situation from that. This is about somebody who's got this level of power, who's become accustomed to the adulation that he's receiving. He also sees him, sees himself as that figure that he's portraying to his followers. Um, So this is getting down to a belief system more than it is just an emotional outburst. So it's quite different. How do you negotiate with somebody like that? It's very challenging. And what we've learned very quickly is we made progress uh, typically, if not almost exclusively, when we sort of kept him in the here and now in, in regular secular worldly matters. That's when he would release people and speak cooperatively. When he periodically and frequently would go off on uh, you know, sermonizing in, in a way that he was quite used to, he would speak almost endlessly about his, you know, very non-traditional views about religion and, and as though he was giving a sermon. And when those things happened, we certainly learned things about him, but it didn't really advance our effort to try to seek resolution. So, I mean, if you look at it on a pie chart, you know, and, and these are just arbitrary numbers, but maybe maybe 20 or 30 percent of the slice of, of the whole pie is, his religious ideology. When you're in that slice, forget it. You're not going to really accomplish anything. So our efforts were always to move him into that broader area of more normal human discussion and interaction where he wasn't constantly posturing as a prophet and a leader of his followers. That's a real tightrope you've got to walk because when you, it's very difficult to argue a fundamental belief system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just, just 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 hop on Twitter and try arguing with people. <laughs> At that point, though, what do you say if you're Gary? What are you saying? And what are you? How are you trying to get people out? Because that's exactly what the strategy was. It was slowly. How can we get him to release people little by little? And in fact, you know, he had said that David Koresh had kind of locked himself in in a way because he had always said to his followers, "You're free to leave whenever you want." Yeah. So the FBI then could really try to bring out tactics to get people to leave and get people to come out. And he said the the FBI really tried to portray themselves as a third party investigating what had happened with that other government group, the ATF and the Branch Davidians, kind of separate themselves from mm. it and and portray themselves as a third party. So while they were doing that, slowly Gary was getting people out. He was getting, for example, mothers and fathers of children that had previously been released, sending videos in and trying to convince them slowly to come out. And this had been relatively successful. Gradually, a small handful of people now and then would leave over that period. But then the whole thing kind of goes awry because within the FBI, you have different branches, different groups, different philosophies. So you had somebody like Gary, whose negotiation tactic was very much listening. So let's have a holding pattern. Um, Let's slowly get people out bit by bit. And you had the tactical team who were much more impatient and they wanted to be much more aggressive in their methods. So as you can imagine, there are some tensions there in the teams. Gary told me how the whole event came to a very dramatic and tragic conclusion. What happened was, I mentioned this um, yin and yang, this um, point and counterpoint between the negotiation philosophy and the tactical philosophy. And it's not the way it's supposed to work, but it did at Waco, sadly. And so every time we would seemingly get a little bit of progress in the negotiations, um, the tactical team would do something provocative that kind of threw us back in a, in, in a, in a ditch that we had to dig ourselves out of. 
um, on the 25th, they decided to replace me with um, with another person uh, to run the negotiations. They felt as though I was or had been an impediment to a more aggressive approach, and that's absolutely true. I was. I was guilty as charged. And um, I was told I was simply being rotated out. Most of the other negotiators had been rotated out after three weeks, and a new crew had been brought in. And uh, I, I left, and, and they took a, a more aggressive approach, and no one else came out. Now, I think about the second week of April, uh, the negotiation team allowed or agreed with a decision to allow lawyers to go in to uh, defend Koresh. The hope was that by showing him he would have legal representation and he could take his case to court, that he would be more likely to surrender to get things back on track. And he told the lawyers that as soon as he finished interpreting the seven seals of the Book of Revelations, he would surrender. And that, in essence, forced the FBI to put on hold doing anything. I think on April 18th, um, they finally were able to speak to Koresh's number one assistant, a fellow named Steve Schneider. And Steve Schneider basically said that despite the fact that Koresh had supposedly been writing this thing for a week, he hadn't even begun. So it convinced the FBI that Koresh's promise to write this was just a stalling technique and that no progress was being made. And it was that was the basis on which they decided to uh, insert tear gas. The plan had been to put tear gas in, pull back, and wait for the Davidians to come out. Um, they, they pumped the tear gas in. The Davidians started firing at them. Uh, they came to the decision, I'm not sure how, that maybe people were being prevented from coming out, so the tanks put big holes in the side of the building in the hopes that 10 people could escape, but uh, no, nobody did, and, and it burned down, and, and you know, over 70 people died. Now, there were nine survivors on the final day, and there was some uh, suggestion some of those, if not all, were not all, but some of those were, were believed to have helped start the fires, and that's why they they escaped the fire itself. So it's a tragedy. I mean, it's a total, total tragedy. And um, I'm certainly the first one to admit um, that FBI decision makers at the scene, I think, made some very bad decisions that contributed to the outcome. So, yeah, very dramatic event that, you know, was in front center of newspapers around the world. Just this compound set ablaze with all of those people inside. You heard there that more than 70 people lost their lives in that incident. The interesting thing about this is I did ask Gary about meeting survivors after the fact and what that interaction might have been like. And he said it took about 20 years before he met some survivors. It was at a retrospective event. And he said two of them that he met, they were a couple, said they still believed in David Koresh after all those years, after going through that, after the media basically claiming the whole thing is a cult, that those two individuals still very much believed in their leader. And that is the very definition of brainwashing. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to learn a little bit more about this story and also about Gary's time as an FBI negotiator, you can find his book, Stalling for Time. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.